Hello, and welcome back to the Previously On podcast. We're continuing with our first season by taking an in-depth look at Avatar The Last Airbender, and more specifically, the first book of that series, Water. My name's Brandon Berger. I'm Evan Muse. And I'm Maxwell Anderson. And together, we're our own sort of Team Avatar. We're very excited to keep our conversation going as we navigate our way through the first book of this series. For our third episode of the podcast, we'll be taking a look at chapters five and six of book one. Previously on Avatar. Here's some more information about chapter five, The King of Omashu. It's the fifth episode of the first season and is the fifth official episode of the show. Like the fourth episode, The Warriors of Kyoshi, this episode introduces us to a new writer, John O'Brien, and also sees a new director, Anthony Leoy, who you may know from his directorial work on King of the Hill, American Dad, and The Cleveland Show. The King of Omashu originally aired on March 18th, 2005. Here's a quick synopsis of Chapter 5. Bonzu Pippin Patalopsicopolis III takes his grandchildren on a trip to the Earth Kingdom city of Omashu, but it's actually Aang, Katara, and Sokka. Aang had a friend in the city named Bumi who he used to ride the mail system with. He brings Katara and Sokka to do the same with them, but after destroying the stock of a simple, hard-working cabbage merchant, are brought before the king. The king throws them a feast. During dinner, it is discovered via chicken leg that Aang is the Avatar, so he is challenged to a series of trials by the king. The hardest challenge is to tell the king how he looks in his new outfit, which really shouldn't be hard because he looks straight fire in those purple robes, but Aang struggles. His final challenge is one of combat, and he mistakenly challenges the king, who turns out to be a real beefcake. Aang almost gets him, but the king finally gets the drop on him. Aang is given a final, final challenge, which is to guess the king's name. Aang realizes it is his old friend Boomy, which was not an obvious twist when I first saw this at 10 years old. Boomy embraces his old friend and warns him of the dangers of the world in the Hundred Years' War. They go on a good mail ride together, just like old times. That is honestly maybe the greatest synopsis in the history of this podcast. I don't think anything I ever craft or find on the internet will be as good as that. (laughs) Thanks, man. (laughs) Here's some more information about Chapter 6, Imprisoned. It's the sixth episode of the first season and is the sixth official episode of the show. Like the previous two episodes... This sixth episode introduces us to yet another new writer, Matthew Hubbard, and also sees the return of previous director Dave Filoni. You may know Matthew from his work on 30 Rock and Parks and Recreation. Imprisoned originally aired on March 25th, 2005. Here's a quick synopsis of Chapter 6. Aang, Katara, and Sokka camp near a small Earth Kingdom town controlled by Fire Nation, where earthbending is forbidden. Katara convinces a young earthbender named Haru to save an old man using his bending abilities, for which he is consequently imprisoned. In response, Katara devises a plan to have herself arrested to free him. While in prison, she incites a rebellion, and the inspired prisoners liberate themselves. Afterwards, she realizes she's lost her mother's necklace, which is later discovered and taken by pursuing Zuko. So, what were your thoughts on these two episodes? Well, let's just jump right into uh, to the King of Omashu. Uh, I really, I mean, it's a bizarre, bizarre episode, but I, I really enjoy it. And I think kind of the bizarre nature works here 
because you have we have as as viewers we have motivation to engage in the bizarre nature like i think from from the get-go we're set up with this kind of bizarre relationship between ang and his friend boomy which as i was researching cool fact boomy is a sanskrit word meaning earth which is a cool tie-in to boomy being part of the earth kingdom and all this awesome stuff but because that initial relationship setup is so kind of wacky everything that follows feels normal like it feels like it's supposed to be happening in omashu right that's a yeah. good point i think this episode is a master class in comedy my favorite is after every bad joke you can hear this light cough i hear that place is really hopping <laughs> you don't know who's doing it it's yeah <laughs> it's so good <laughs> It's done three times, like the perfect amount to make it funny. God, I love it. I like that the only one that laughs at the jokes is Sokka. Yeah. <laughs> and it's always usually delayed. So the joke will happen, we'll pause, the cough will happen, and then Sokka will laugh. <laughs> I have a plot hole question about this episode. Ask it. When they first approach the city, the guards are yelling at the cabbage merchant, telling him to get out of there because they don't want the cabbage. But then when they crash into him, he's in the city with his stuff. How'd he get in? And it's it's not an easy trek back. Like, you see the the little narrow path to Amashu. That's got to be, like, a solid way. So does he, is he just hoarding cabbages somewhere? I feel like the king of Amashu, King Bumi, was like, no, you ain't turning that cabbage man away. I want I want my cabbage guy in my city. Bring him in. But they destroyed his cabbages. They threw him off the ledge. Actually, I was reading something funny about the economics of the cabbage man, of the cabbage like cart man. It said that he honestly must have a stash of cabbages and carts just at his disposal so that anytime it gets destroyed, he can immediately refill it or just bring out a whole new cart of cabbages. And it's it he this guy loses just tons of money. But doesn't, it doesn't matter because he's got all this cabbage just in random places. I love that. Well, it makes sense why he then is able to go on to develop a cabbage corporation. <laughs> Ooh, yes. One of my favorite moments of the series actually happens in this episode. And on every subsequent rewatch, except for this one for this podcast, I will either send Max a video or a picture of the TV as I'm watching it. And it's always the dinner scene when he, when uh, Boomy decides to throw them the feast and they're trying to back out of the, of the room. And, uh, Aang's like, I'm the avatar doing my avatar thing, keeping the world safe. Everything checks out. No firebenders here. So good work, everybody. Love each other, respect all life and don't run with your spears. We'll see you next time. You can't keep us here. Let us leave. Let us leave? We're in serious trouble. This guy is nuts. Honestly, every single time I see that, I just I just die laughing. This is your Evan, your comment about it being a master class in comedy, I think is very accurate. Well, from everything, right? From trying to shove a fat momo through like a little hole and like from I mean, they even have some kind of scarier moments where Aang's, you know, diving into water above like a bunch of uh, like spikes and he almost, you know, ends the air nation right then and there. <laughs> right. Um, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Ooh, 
quiz time. What type of animal is Flopsy? He's a gorilla goat. Ah, man. <laughs> wow. I did not know that answer, but Evan was so quick. <laughs> That's not an editing secret there, friends. Evan <laughs> honestly responded to that lightning fast. That's impressive. Yeah. I did the game that you guys challenged me to do where I wrote out the synopsis before I watched this episode. I had every detail down. I didn't need to watch it again, but I did anyway. <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh, God. That's brilliant, too. Yeah, for our listeners, we um, challenged ourselves to to write more of the synopses for each episode, and um, Evan immediately took King of Omashu and then told us that it is an episode he's seen probably more than any other episode, or at least one that he enjoys more than any other episode. And we challenged him, because of his background knowledge, to write the synopsis before he watched the episode and like you just heard he uh he crushed it absolutely crushed it thank you very much yeah this quizzing you guys isn't going to be as much fun i guess with this <laughs> gonna have to get some obscure facts <laughs> we'll have to wait till we bring in a special guest and then break out all the yes, all the questions for this being as lighthearted and like bizarre an episode as it is I do remember feeling a lot of like dread around it. Like the idea of the creeping crystals like really scared me. I don't know. It just gave me that claustrophobia. And the fact that like, I mean, the implied threat is death, right? For all of them, basically. Um, so there is this bizarre light humor, that sort of thing, which is offset by this sort of tension. Uh, I guess we kind of know that nothing bad is actually going to happen. But at the same time, the threat is definitely there. Well, and I think the creeping crystal itself, the Gemini, it assigns a a fixed amount of time on either a task or a set of tasks for Aang or for anybody, right? And until this point in the show, we've never really had to worry about time. You know, Aang's been in the iceberg for a hundred years. We don't really know how how much time passes when they travel from place to place. It's not something we're made keenly aware of um, until he throws these. Uh, creeping crystal rings on Sokka and Katara, and then Aang has a finite amount of time to complete these tasks, which, like you said before, Max, are legitimate, serious tasks, with the exception of the clothes. But the retrieval of the key, the getting Flopsy to come up, and then the duel, it's, it's uh, yeah, there's a lot that could have gone horribly wrong in this episode. That, yeah, would have just ended it all. Hindsight being what it is, we know that it wouldn't have ended that way. But we just didn't know until the very end of the episode. I think by that end, too, you have the release of that tension, which feels so good and so genuine. We've done now in the last, especially with the Southern Air Temple, that really affirms this idea that no one Aang knew is alive anymore. And then to suddenly change that after Aang being, I think, pretty resolute, at that point that oh everyone i know is dead to give him someone it's beautiful it's really emotional yeah and i had a question about that too kind of based on that flashback sequence and then the nice little bow that this episode gets wrapped up in where we know that boomy is ang's former friend or old friend i wonder how long or how much time there was between when ang found out he was the avatar to when he left because to me some of this some of that timing, like before, doesn't always add up. You know, we know that he was uh, the youngest airbender to ever be deemed a master and earn his airbender tattoos. And then it wasn't much long after that he found out he was the Avatar. And then it wasn't much long after that when he left. 
But in the flashback sequence, Aang has his master tattoos, might know that he's the Avatar, but might not. My assumption is that he doesn't know he's the Avatar yet. This was before that, because as soon as they told him he was the Avatar, there's no way they're going to let him go wander off, at least on his own, because what if the Fire Nation is there and captures him or whatever? So my question is how, I mean, it might not be relevant either, but just how long before kind of that catastrophic self kind of reaction to being the Avatar happened, um, how long of, of a time period was that before? And how many people did Aang really know as closely as he knew Boomy? You know, I just wonder how many of those people he could have left. Because like you said, Evan, it gives Aang somebody to have and to go back to after we're supposed to assume that they're all dead. I wonder if there are any more or if this is it. I think it's something that only works with Boomy. Uh, if there's a bunch of 112 year olds running around it wouldn't really make sense but for boomy it's like okay the laws of age and physics don't apply to this guy like it works um but if he's just going around all over the place like if kuzan is still alive or whatever like it just i guess takes you out of it a little bit i think it only works because it's boomy i wonder chronologically too i think you're right that ang did not get the chance to travel at all after he was revealed to be the avatar i think he had to focus a lot maybe that was one of like the last big things he got to go out in the world and do before he was on lockdown essentially that could be why sure he holds that that moment so tenderly as a memory and wants to go back to that yeah it's a good point i feel like he must have found a way to tell boomy maybe send him a, a letter or something like hey I'm the Avatar. I can't hang out anymore. Because because Boomy's not surprised that Aang is the Avatar when he's there. That's right. That's a good point. We must have told him. I guess if you see your 12-year-old friend that you haven't heard of since the genocide of their people, I guess you can kind of put two and two together. Right. Well, and that's the thing, too, is as an, as a, an air nomad and an airbender, they're taught to kind of let go of their worldly possessions and and... In the end, it's their service to humanity and to nature and to the earth that matters. That I, I wonder if I wonder if he did tell Boomy before he left. Or if, like Max said, if Boomy just quickly put two and two together. Um, one thing that I thought was it's our first kind of explicit discussion about who's gonna be the the big bad guy. Um, where Boomy says, like, You must master the four elements and confront the fire lord. Is that the first time we hear his name too? I don't know. And then he says, And when you do, I hope you will think like a mad genius. And it took me a second. I was like, well, that doesn't really come into play. And then I was like, oh, no, it definitely plays a huge part in it. I don't know how much we want to go into that now, but just to kind of leave it there as a um, something to look forward to as like, there's definitely going to be some some wild card plays in the final battle. You're exactly right. And I think... I think both King of Amashu and Imprisoned, this kind of sequence of episodes right here, there's a lot of moments that get kind of called back to in the finale. You know, I think a lot about that ending of Imprisoned when they're all leaving the prison. Lettuce leaving? Lettuce leaving. <laughs> and uh, Haru and Haru's dad are talking about reclaiming their towns and all of their towns. And it's just like this big rallying cry. It does foreshadow something that happens in book three, which we're not going to talk about now, but we'll hopefully remember to talk about when it happens. But I think those moments are cool moments to, to see now and then 
understand and know where they go long term. So yeah, Max, thinking like a mad genius, of course, it's going to have to be a multi-layered plan to defeat this guy who now has a name. It might have been the first time they said Fire Lord Ozai. Um, so it might be the first time we're hearing the Fire Lord's actual name. But we know that the Fire Lord is kind of the end baddie, um, even though Zuko is kind of this... Uh, current baddie now along with Zhao being kind of this other figure hunting the avatar. But yeah, it, it adds a lot of, of high stakes. And it's the first time that I think somebody explicitly says, if we're going to get through this, you have to, Aang, you have to defeat this guy. I was wondering if you guys wanted to talk about Bumi being the king of Omashu, mm. because there's already an Earth King is Omashu like out of their jurisdiction? Do we do we know that there's an Earth King, or do we just know that there's an Earth Kingdom? Like there are a bunch of Earth Kingdom towns and cities that are maybe a little bit independent. I don't know if we know yet that there is a separate Earth King, which kind of makes it weird because we also don't. When we find out that there is like a king in Ba Sing Se, another Earth Kingdom town, so at I guess technically then right now, the only king that we know of is Boomy, right? Right. But I, I like the question, Evan, in the grand scheme of things, is Boomy sort of a self-proclaimed king? Because the Earth Kingdom has an Earth King, and it's the, you know, it's the king in Bossing Say. But as we kind of find out, they're not very involved in their kingdom, right? They're pretty self-contained. So I like the idea that Boomy's just like, nah, I'm king now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Like he wasn't a prince when Aang knew him, right? So <laughs> it's like a street kid, yeah. But it also matches his personality, Max, like you were saying. This kind of crazy, quirky guy. Oh yeah, I could just uh I could just rule this town and uh everybody's gonna be fine with it. <laughs> it also helps that he's incredibly powerful and incredibly strong, as we see in the final duel. Ooh, such a good duel. That's got such good... I mean, that's like a, a really creative fight between them. Like, Aang using a tornado, Boomy throwing like a literal, like, I don't know, the biggest chunk of Earth that we see being bent. Like, it's just great. And then there's that animation where after Aang wins, if you want to call it a victory, even though they would have both been crushed, I think, when when Boomy just falls backward and Aang's just like, bye, Aang, whatever face he makes. <laughs> Got a kick out of that too. I think that this gives us a good introduction to to an Earth Kingdom town or village or city that then, you know, we get to experience more in uh, Imprisoned where, okay, here was a free Earth Kingdom and then we transition then into an occupied Earth Kingdom. So uh, we get to experience what it's like when the Fire Nation isn't involved and then quickly we see what the reality is of this 100-year war. And I think it's interesting to think about the changes not only like physically with an occupation, but how that translates to the economics of, of a town too. You know, the first thing we see after Katara and Haru um, have their interaction and then they follow Haru back to the town. The first thing we see is um, the Ang gang in this shop, which is then being taxed excessively uh, by the, the, the Fire Nation troops who are, who are occupying the village. And it's just crippling this family. And it's it's not just about that physical intimidation. It's about, okay, now that we've got control over you, here are all the other things that we can do to make your life suck, to be honest. I think it follows the arc of what the Fire Nation has done to each 
different nation in an interesting way that mirrors a lot of other like dictatorships and oppressive regimes is their strategy at the beginning with the air nation was to wipe out everybody and then as they grew more powerful and more intimidating they had to do less actual killing but were still able to like manipulate and oppress people through like occupation i think it's interesting to see that strategy change like over a hundred years i completely agree and how and you know i i can only imagine but the people living through it they're they're experiencing it right like an outsider like katara comes in and is like why don't you guys just rebel why don't you just stand up and it's like no you have no idea like you you have not lived this like we've lost loved ones everybody we know gets like taken away to these really crazy like internment camps where they're worked you know until who knows so i think it's it it shows again that i don't know i i want to give katara credit but i still get this idea that she you know she's just like our our optimist but also sort of tone deaf yeah and the hard thing about that too is okay Katara, where are you coming from? Mm -hmm. Why do you have this optimism? The Fire Nation killed your mother Mm -hmm. and basically whittled your your tribe into nothing, into an insignificant amount of people and an insignificant presence on the global stage. It's like you of all people should understand why they can't rise up and and fight back in any way Right. what's at risk yeah i think this show does a good job of letting us see why idealism is so important but also why it is hard to hold on to Mm -hmm. that it doesn't blame people for not being idealists in this world for having suffered and for not being particularly optimistic but it it still shows how important that is to getting out of it. No, that's really, that's an excellent point. And we get to see that throughout the show, I think. It's that balance between kind of like Aang's optimism that he can defeat the Fire Lord and versus the reality of like, well, how do you actually stop someone like that from continuing their reign? Yeah, that idealism versus realism is really present throughout. One moment struck me as odd, and I know it's a little moot because of, you know, when back in the Southern Air Temple, when Aang went into the Avatar state and sent the beacons up to everything. I feel like when Katara is in the prison and announces in the Fire Nation prison that the Avatar is back, like I thought they were still kind of trying to hide. I don't know if that's something that you want to just disclose in a Fire Nation prison, which is really close to a Fire Nation village, which is occupied by the Fire Nation. You know, it's not mm, not the best thing to have done there. And I think that was a lost opportunity in the story to then say, okay, what would the what would the Fire Nation uh, guards and soldiers and and workers at the prison do with that information? Mm. And I it, it almost could have brought about a swifter end. You know, I think at that point, if they knew and they were able to relay it to the Fire Lord or to the other generals in the Fire Nation army, you know, all hell breaks loose then and everybody descends on this area because how does this how does this uh, girl know do you know where the avatar is take us to him now or it's over you know i think that was a little bit of a lost opportunity to then expand on kind of that intimidation and development of the fire nation a little bit i think it i think they kind of try to excuse it with the like the southern air temple bit that um the world already knows but it, it doesn't quite make sense because Katara doesn't know that those statues were glowing everywhere and that the Fire Nation is already tipped off to this. So I feel like it is kind of a confusing moment. And I think 
yeah, too daring of a risk for her to be taking at that point. I think it does highlight the theme that Aang is going to be sort of on the run and in hiding and how much do they disclose. I want to do a conspiracy theory section where at the very beginning there's this throwaway where Aang trades a couple of nuts for a hat to this old guy. Um, I've never really paid attention to it, but with this hat, he's then able to go incognito that otherwise, you know, it's pretty obvious that there's an airbender. So I like the idea that this old man sees the avatar, sees this airbender, like approach him just like out in the open in a like Fire Nation occupied village. And it's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he's like, oh, cool hat. And he's like, take it. Cover yourself <laughs> up. Like, <laughs> Otherwise, why would you trade a hat for some nuts? I don't know. Those nuts did not look appealing. <laughs> I know earlier we talked about Jason Isaacs voicing uh, Zhao, the new kind of antagonist Fire Nation guy. We get uh, another familiar voice um, voicing the warden um, of the of the prison here, and it's uh, George Takei, which is a very very cool um use of him as an actor in this uh in this episode i was very surprised and also just kind of i was surprised that george takei was in this in this episode in the show but then i was also very surprised at how well it worked for kind of the character they were trying to create this warden who is both intimidating but also kind of seems to be chill and then just randomly flips and loses it, understands his power, but just has this established presence. Earthbenders, it is my pleasure to welcome you aboard my modest shipyard. I am your warden. I prefer to think of you not as prisoners, but as honored guests. I think, um, you guys know, like, George Takei was in an internment camp. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think he seems to really relish in this opportunity to both highlight the severity of a person like this, but also mock them and caricaturize them. And right. he, he toes mm -hmm. that line beautifully of being like, this guy is in a, a power hungry idiot and a real piece of work, but he is all, but that doesn't mean he's not dangerous. Right. And in fact, as we learn more and more in the show, those who, seek that power and have that idea of they are entitled to that power are often the most dangerous people. Um, we, we see it time and time again with the variety of different fire nation people, um, represented and it's, yeah, it's, that's a great point to bring up, Evan. I, I, uh, hadn't thought about that right away, but it does make a lot of sense as to why his performance is so impactful here. I had no idea. That's, and that's brutal. That's brutal to have to portray your, captors but wow this kind of brings up an interesting perspective on this episode that i think is a little bit problematic is that we have these two white show creators who are attempting to like make a critique on american history japanese internment camps but they are doing it within an entirely asian inspired culture mm -hmm. and specifically like framing the oppressors um as one's based on like Japanese imperialism. And I'm not sure that that reversal plays very well, that it was Japanese Americans who had to experience that and were, were forced into these camps by white American government to then have a Japanese-esque culture being the oppressor. It plays a little weird to me. Mm. Yeah, that's a lot to kind of take in and process, but it is 
it is the more you think about it, the more you and I, it, honestly, it all kind of centers around Evan. What you brought up initially with George Takei as a human, not as a you know actor playing a character through his own lived experience, and then now bringing that here, plus framing it as yeah, these these two white creators clearly making a commentary on this. It is definitely something that unless you explicitly confront it, could get missed. And when you do explicitly confront it, yes, it definitely, it shows kind of this, I don't want to say tone deaf, but portrayal of this significant historical moment. And like you said, that reversal of perspective, you're exactly right, just doesn't really land. I think it's really tough to balance like the abstract versus the specific, especially with like a kid's show. Like you're just trying to teach the lesson that like, putting people in camps is bad and that's an important lesson for anyone to learn and to be able to put that in context for folks of a young age is amazing but then you are you are losing that specific of well this did happen it was perpetuated by white americans against japanese americans and i don't know how you would put that into that context in this show necessarily um and i think you're absolutely right that George Takei brings that lived experience that balances it out, but it's still like, it's his performance, but it's not, he didn't write the lines. It's a very tricky balance. This is really interesting. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought this up, Evan. I hadn't really thought about this as being problematic before, but I hadn't realized that George Takei had been uh, in a Japanese American internment camp. So yeah, you'd kind of hope that there would be a direct comparison or better metaphors captured instead of this weird reversal. Um, I'm curious where our conversation will go because this isn't, this isn't the only time in Avatar where they talk about internment camps or labor camps. I know in Korra season four, we get introduced to the re-education camps. So it'll be interesting to see how those play out, if we still feel it's problematic or if they are able to do it in a better way. Um, we'll have to see where that goes. But yeah, I think you're right, Evan, for this one, it is just a really tough tightrope to walk. You want to introduce this concept, but also make it culturally appropriate, make it make sense and try to be sensitive. Did they do that? Didn't they do that? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, and I, I think to it kind of talking about the ending resolution of this episode and how kind of paralleling it with what you were talking about, Evan, and how, you know, it's not the most sincere treatment of kind of that escape or that freedom that is ultimately achieved in this episode. You know, it's it's not as if in these internment camps that took place in the United States, one person could have gone in and rallied this group together to then fight for their freedom in the moment. But that's kind of what's presented here. And while I understand that, yes, this is kind of a fantastic world that we're in and immersed in and that, you know, these types of circumstances, like that was Katara's plan and Sokka's plan was to get her in there for this purpose to rile up the prisoners and and get them to escape. And again, yes, it's a it's a fantasy story, but it it takes more than that. And I think when um, the warden even references it after Katara's speech, the warden says, <laughs> "Foolish girl, you thought a few inspirational words and some coal would change these people." Look at these blank, hopeless faces. Their spirits were broken a long time ago. 
Oh, but you still believe in them. How sweet. They're a waste of your energy, little girl. You failed. And then it becomes kind of Haru, who isn't a person who had been there for very long and whose spirit hadn't been broken yet, kind of continues that rebellion against the Fire Nation prison guards to ultimately lead them to this safety. There are many elements of this that are paralleling that experience, and it's hard to comment on that. But there's also, this is still like a fictional world. Um, and even though that parallel can exist, it's hard to fully grasp that in the context of this show, I think. Definitely. And I have a feeling it's not going to be the only time there will be some problematic things that we see in the show. But Probably yeah, not. For sure. <laughs> I think I think it's... It's credit where credit's due. Like, they're definitely trying to dive into this, but how much can you do in the context and stuff like that? And we've talked about this as it relates to gender roles and sexism and and all of that stuff, too. And I think it's easy for us to want to just berate the effort and the attempt. But it, in hindsight, it is it is a children's show. We've talked about dark themes on this podcast as they relate to the show, and not everybody's going to think of it in that way or see it the same way we do. And you have to you have to think about what what the intent was of the show. Like, did the creators intend for us in 2020, after having been able to watch the show multiple times, to think about this as a parallel of the Japanese internment situation in the United States. I, I have no idea. And if, you know, if ever I got the opportunity to talk to the creators, I would certainly hope that I could ask them that question. You just wonder, you wonder if we ever take some of these themes or these parallels to a different extreme um, than was even created and kind of make a mountain out of a molehill. Who knows? For sure. And I love making mountains out of molehills, but <laughs> <laughs> badger molehills. There we go. Brandon, are you are you suggesting that we're looking too in depth into this cartoon show? <laughs> yes, that's why I As encourage we make us a podcast to, to make this podcast. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, well, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't just for a second hate on that old man that ratted out Haru after he saved him. That part. <laughs> oh, he's the worst. Just is nuts. I started rationalizing it in my head. I made up like fanfic for this guy that like maybe they had his family hostage or they made it cut a deal. Like he had family members on the imprisonment ship or on the on the rig that like, oh, I'll give you this earthbender if you let these guys go. I don't know. But it was like that was so he was he was worse than any of the villains that we come across. <laughs> Yes, he is. Thank you. God. <laughs> somebody else. Tension and re- tension and release. Somebody <laughs> else to agree with me that this old man is terrible. <laughs> I think that's a testament to speaking of lived experiences in this world. This old man has probably lived under this oppressive regime the entire time it's been there. And I don't I think it's explicitly referred to that the Fire Nation has only been in this village for a shorter amount of time. But I think this old man has at least lived a majority of his life, probably all of his life, while there's a war going on. So I think this old man, while yes, it was not a good thing and he shouldn't have ratted out Haru for saving his life, that's all this man knows. All this man knows is the oppression of the Fire Nation. Mm. And he's been taught that earthbenders um, aren't supposed, like it's, we're not supposed to earthbend here. You're not supposed to have any of this potential to rebel and rise up against. And, and to an extent, the old man was just doing what he has also been taught to do, which is comply with what the fire nation wants. Yeah. I think that's 
a really excellent point. It illustrates that entrenched view that maybe they they got. Um, and I think we get to experience that more with the next couple of episodes with the solstice and stuff like that, where you have people who, you know, worshipped the Avatar turning against that, and now they are in tow with the Fire Lord. And so, yeah, I, I definitely think that this show really highlights how how views and values and all that can be sort of skewed and changed over time so good point and that's going to do it for this episode we hope you've enjoyed our discussion so far as we certainly have we'll be back soon with more conversation about the first season of avatar the last airbender we're now live on facebook and twitter just search for at previous.pod on facebook and at previous underscore pod on twitter Give us a like or a follow and interact with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the series as we keep the dialogue going. A big thanks to my co-hosts, Evan and Max, for being a part of the podcast. We'll see you soon. Yip, yip.